Why do Democrats hate Americans so much? When Hillary was running for president, she said half of Donald Trump's supporters were, quote, a basket of deplorables. Recently, Joe Biden, at a speech in Philadelphia, told America that half of us are semi-fascist terrorists. Under the First Amendment of the Constitution, we have the right to express our opinions. And if we disagree with the left, they don't have the right to take away our freedom of speech. Clearly, the statement by Hillary and Biden are designed to silence the conservatives in America. Many Americans find it easier to go along with the left and give up their right to disagree. What would America look like today if our founding fathers would have given in to the king and not fought for their freedom? Today we must fight to take America back. Join the new generation of patriots who believe in the Constitution. Join the new revolution in America. Fire your shot for freedom. It's time for Black and White, a show that wants to bring all of us together talking again about the issues that concern us. It's time to hear from people who only want to deal with facts. It's time for you to re-engage in your right of American free speech. It's time for Black and White. Welcome back to Blacks and Whites, and we have a very fascinating woman to join us today who's going to talk about an amazing book. She's going to show us the cover. Hold it up. The Weaponization of Loneliness with the subtitle how tyrants stroke our fear of isolation to silence, divide, and conquer us. Stella Morabito, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. Uh, we had an opportunity to spend a little time before the show talking about the book and what she's talking about. So I, I want to start off by, why don't you tell us, our listeners, a little bit about your background and who you are? Okay, uh, thank you. Well, first of all, I've always been fascinated by uh, how propaganda and, uh, you know, psychological manipulation operates. And uh, so my, my professional background includes a master's degree in Russian and Soviet history. And then I went on to work at the CIA. Uh, and this was some years ago. Uh, but I, I, I worked uh, primarily as an analyst of propaganda and media analysis of the Soviet Union. And of course, if anybody is familiar with the history of the Soviet Union and Stalin's reign of terror, um, the weaponization of loneliness or isolation really plays into that uh, when you look at uh, you know, the history. Uh, and then, um, you know, I, I, I never stopped my fascination, even when I uh, stayed home to raise my family and homeschool, I was always fascinated by these dynamics and studied, uh, you know, I was always collecting clippings of what was going on with all of the issues and the woke creep, uh, I even saw transgender uh, propaganda in my public library in the mid 1990s. So. Uh, I had my eye out for a lot of these things for a long time. And then uh, I started writing op-eds, uh, starting with the Washington Examiner. And then I am uh, currently, since 2014, a senior contributor to The Federalist, where I write about a lot of these kinds of issues. So um, first question I want to ask you, was the expo explosion, let me try it a different way, was it an explosion uh stimulated by the pandemic that saw this tremendous weaponization of everything or was it just the way it evolved 
Oh, no, I think that we, you know, you, you could see lots of headlines um, for a lot of years going back before the pandemic of a loneliness epidemic in this country. And uh, I think part of it had to do with the explosion of technological community, you know, tech, the tech hype, you know, the internet and social media and all of this that kind of pulled people inward. And then along with that, uh, you know, there's so many different factors that affected that. I mean, family breakdown, community breakdown, but also what was happening in education and kids just weren't learning. They weren't getting content knowledge they needed. So in my view, it was like a cultivation of ignorance. Uh, all of these things are isolating. Uh, and, you know, then we have the opioid epidemic and all that. But what happened with COVID is that it just really fast tracked a sense of isolation. Uh, and it, it uh, you know, we were blatantly and literally isolated from one another. And you could even feel the cultivation of hostilities going on as they, you know, promoted this propaganda about, you know, the vaccine mandates that at first they said that wasn't ever going to happen. Of course it did. And, uh, you know, people are getting fired from their jobs for not being uh, vaccinated. Well, vaccine, you know, it's not really a vaccine if you need to be boosted forever. But um, it, it's uh, it, all of these things played into hostilities that hit at the very heart of our private lives, families you know, angry with one another, or, you know, angry with those who were unvaccinated, wouldn't let them come to Thanksgiving dinner. And, you know, all, all of this fear mongering through the, you know, through this uh, pandemic uh, really brought out uh, what I consider to be into the open, uh, the war on private life. And I think that that's something that uh, has gone on for a long time with all these utopian radical revolutions throughout history. Uh, you can look at the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, Nazi Germany, you can look at, uh, you know, Mao's Cultural Revolution, and every single one of those had, uh, you know, loyalty had to be to the mass state and, and not to uh, your personal family, faith community, friendships. So, um, you know, you could see the erosion there. It's really troubling, and we have to turn around. We can't keep going down this path. Very dangerous. Hold up the cover of your book again for me, please. Yes, I, I should see if I can put it. Maybe I'll just hold it here. Okay, that's yeah. all right. The question <laughs> yeah. I want to I want to continue the discussion, but I want to go to the cover of the book. Why do you think you and the publishers decided to put Dr. Fauci on the cover? Well, I think he pretty much sums up or symbolizes uh, the feelings a lot of people have. Uh, connected with the weaponization of loneliness based on uh, all of these mandates that were shoved down our throats during the uh, COVID regime, which you know I personally don't think is going to end. It is going to come back in another form. Uh, but uh, but you know he he pretty much is the symbol of that, and you see him there wagging his finger at us. So I thought I actually thought it was a a, a pretty good uh, a pretty good cover for political nonfiction. Right. So you, you can put it down. It's just, it, yeah. it, it raise your, it rest your arm and your hands. <laughs> how is it that he was, do you have any sense of how was it he was able to gain so much power so quickly? 
Oh, you know, I, that's a that's a question probably more for insiders. But my view is that, you know, he was set up as an expert for a long time. I mean, you know, what has it been? 40, 50 years. So everybody uh, kind of looked at him. I, I don't know how, uh, you know, through, you know, what channels uh, he got all of his supposed gravitas. But, uh, you know, I think President Trump trusted him. Uh, you know, we, well, we, you know, with the medical, the institution of medicine, Americans really do want to trust it. And, and so when you have somebody who's been there for decades uh, that, you know, they listen, uh, I think a lot of that trust has eroded. A lot of that trust is gone. It's, I agree know, with you. Yeah, so, but, but I think traditionally in America, we do try, we wanna trust our doctors. Who doesn't wanna trust their doctor? Uh, and so, uh, you know, and, and that again, that's another manipulative kind of thing. You know, you get somebody who you're supposed to trust and, and then they start, you know, using what's called undue influence. You know, this authority figure that uh, has the power to influence. So, you know, that, that's just my take on it. I want to move to a, a different uh, pew in the church, if they, as they used to say. One of the things that I have been the most concerned about and have written reams of commentary on is the impact of what we did in terms of policies, the impact on our children oh. and the ed education system. Yeah. And... Um, I think loneliness is a is a huge negative when we went to isolating children, taking them out of the classroom, trying to put them in front of a TV, which didn't work. And and we have uh, a generation or perhaps two that have been so adversely affected. Mm -hmm. um, I, I fully expect to see increasing suicide rates coming yeah. on. And, and more violence because the isolation of the children as they were evolving it creates a situation of antisocial behavior. What do you think? Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's really criminal what, what the, this has done to our children. But, you know, it's been going on for a long time. But the COVID uh, isolation of children was just, in my view, totally unforgivable. I mean, we knew the children were not that affected by it and the survival rate for anybody who didn't have other, uh, you know, major serious health issues uh, was almost 100%. So uh, this, th there's something totally, um, you know, totally awry here. But children in particular, you know, they're very highly suggestible. I mean, we all are, but children in particular, they really, you know, we're all hardwired to connect with other people. Um, and, and you can, that's magnified so many times for children and, and their healthy development, you know, really depends on healthy relationships and, you know, stability. And so when you have not just these COVID practices, these, you know, covering, they have to cover their faces, they can't talk to each other at lunch, and they've got, you know, two years now, they're, they're uh, set back academically, but I believe emotionally and mentally in so many ways. Uh, as well, but at the same time, you have these 
really, really, um, I feel cruel curricula, uh, like the, the, you know, the, the critical race theory that tells them to really, I mean, I don't know how else to put it. It really tells them to hate each other, to have hostilities against each other based on their demographic, what they look like. Uh, and and then there's the, um, the uh, you know, that's the whole victim oppressor thing going on, but then the whole gender ideology thing. And that's been brewing up for a long time. Like I told you, I've detected it in my public library. It was a small thing, but in, in the mid nineties. And so this, is, this has been going on for a long time. I was starting to write about the transgender thing about 12 years ago, uh, but, uh, the uh, that is so destabilizing for children. I mean, you know about how uh, girls in particular now are, uh, you know, identifying as boys by, you know, this rapid rate. And, you know, in my view, there's a lot of reasons for that. But uh, primarily, I think it's to break out of the isolation. You know, there's a lot of bullying in public schools. And so they become a protected class. Uh, that way. And also everybody gives them a big pat on the back. You know, you're so brave. You're so, you know, it, it all fits into the the whole uh, cultural, um, you know, push that the, uh, that the educrats, you know, are pushing for with this curriculum. So I know I got a little bit away from your question about how COVID uh, affected children, but I think it fast tracked a lot of that isolation that they were already feeling. Um, you know, I talk about the public schools in, uh, you know, one of the chapters, uh, you know, about institutional subversion and, and how so much of what goes on there, they're not, you know, you can be isolated in more than one way. I mean, you, you can be isolated physically, but you can also, if you're cut off from information, from content knowledge, which is what's happening, you know, in, in the schools, you know, everything is just this indoctrination um, that's very isolating as well. And you feel, you always feel like you have to say the right thing or you're going to be ostracized and you're actually taught to ostracize. I hate to say it, but, um, you know, teachers actually do, um, some of these teachers will, will actually teach kids to ostracize others on the basis of being, um, uh, you know, you know, a bigot if you don't accept, um, you know, the, the, the orthodoxy of, of gender ideology. Anyway, uh, that's kind of a, a rambling way of answering your question. But, uh, you know, for children, suicide rates are spiking, anxiety, depression, all of this. And uh, the COVID, the lockdowns, especially for schools, didn't help. Well, we, uh, we have to take a quick break here. We'll be right back uh, and continue our, our conversation on a very important subject. So we'll be right back. Inflation for most people is causing them to use their credit cards to try and make up for income shortfalls. How big is this problem? In the second quarter of 2022, Americans added $46 billion to their credit card balances. Some of that could be you. The Federal Reserve Consumer Credit Report showed that the rate of interest on credit cards went from 14.56 to 16.65%. Those Americans struggling with credit card debt saw their delinquency rates escalate from 1.66% to 1.81%. The Cambridge Debt Consolidation Program may be able to help you reduce the interest rates by two-thirds and cut your time to pay off the debt from 30 years 
to as little as five years. If you're struggling and you want professional and objective help getting your credit house in order, then call 1-855-435-2066 or go to the website cambridgeyescredit.org forward slash BW hyphen podcast and get your house in order. Welcome back. And we're having a fascinating conversation. Put out the book. Let's see the cover. Here we go. Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. Thank you. Um, I want to go back to something you said in our first segment. You took your children out of school and decided to homeschool them. Why? Oh, my goodness. And I was in a so-called blue ribbon uh, district, you know, school district, very highly, uh, supposedly highly desired. Um, this was a while ago. This was before a lot of the really, really crazy, crazy stuff. But still, I didn't feel they were getting the uh, academic, uh, I, I didn't feel they were getting what they needed. And I'll tell you one of the other things that I did while they were still in school was, uh, and I was talk I'm talking about a fourth grader and a sixth grader at the time, is I had myself uh, uh, credentialed as a substitute teacher in that district. I never went into my children's elementary school, but I went into about five or six of the other elementary schools around them. This is in Montgomery County, Maryland. And it was one of the, you know, top, uh, fed into the top high school there. And, um, you know, I would go to these elementary schools and do my substitute teaching. And I, I had the same lesson plan that the teacher was going to do that day. And uh, just in terms of the regimentation, it's not like I wasn't totally familiar with this, but as a substitute teacher, I, I was observing and you know some of the kids were just wonderful. Some of them were awful, <laughs> but I was observing how many interruptions and and a lot of the you know the, the, the tensions with the kids and uh, you know a lot of the clickishness and all that, especially sixth graders and and um, so I you know I by the end of the day and I did this a few dozen times you know I I, I was mostly in my view it was an experiment. I mean, you have to, it's not a bit, it's not a small deal. You have to get yourself fingerprinted and do all this other stuff to become a substitute teacher. But I didn't have the confidence at the time in homeschooling. But by the end of it, I said to myself, I could teach my kids more in five minutes that went on all day long today. And I started saying that to, to myself over and over. I couldn't believe it, but it was true, literally true. And, uh, and this was considered one of the top school districts. So um, I, uh, you know, that was one reason was I felt that they weren't getting what they needed. There were all these trendy little things, uh, you know, that weren't really history, these little, I don't know, trendy ideas of, you know, you go off and pretend you make a, I don't know, you make some item of clothing or something, uh, for, you know, to represent, uh, you know, say Greek history or, you know, Roman, it wasn't, it wasn't really history. So there was that, and they just weren't getting the support. They, one of them particularly wasn't getting the support he needed. So I just did it on my own, and um, and they took off. Now I was lucky uh, that you know I had uh, you know I was you know, I had a husband who had a fantastic job, and I didn't have to worry about you know a lot of the other things that 
you know, people who, you know, a lot of women would feel they needed to work or, you know, or something else. So um, anyway, uh, I, I was lucky, but uh, that, that was one reason. And of course, the other one, the, the, the uh, emotional environment, in my view, is toxic, uh, you know, in the, in the, especially in the big public schools. I've written about this before in The Federalist, you know, just the, just the whole kind of, especially high schools, this whole Blade Runner sort of uh, environment, uh, you know, Blade Runner, I mean, you know, the schools themselves are isolating, kind of alienating um, environments. Uh, so anyway, I don't know if that answers your question, but I felt sure. that there, you know, th there is a kind of an isolating uh, aspect, a very strong one in, in, these, in these public schools. Right. Um, Stella, I, I, I believe um, that the problems that we have in the public school today has it has its roots in 1946 and i say that because i believe when the husbands went to war the wives got a job to, to have the family survive and when the husband came back from war and saw that his wife was working and and making money they made a decision that they could do things with two two incomes that they couldn't do with just one income. They could have a bigger house in the suburbs, another car, take vacations, on and on and on. So when it came to education, the parents in many degrees abdicated the responsibility for the type of education their children receive to the school classroom teacher. And it's at that moment in time that the left of that position, teachers, began to change the curriculum and the role of the teacher and the child in the classroom. And it's evolved to where we are today. There are very powerful unions and they are dealing with critical race theory and gender identification and all of this. And yet most of what's going on that's controversial, as you aptly pointed out, doesn't belong in the school system anyway. Because we're not teaching fundamental skills mm -hmm. oh yeah no I, well um if you want me to comment on you know the that changing role in the family and the wife and working i don't know the extent to which i you know have a background in that and how okay. that would have affected uh affected things but certainly i would agree that the schools um you know, at a certain point became uh, just sort of an expectation of a place for the kids to go while we did this and that and the other thing. And, uh, it, it, you know, people just kind of got used to having that uh, and, uh, and, and lost track of the, uh, you know, the essential values, especially this is happening while the family is breaking down. You know, you've got no-fault divorce getting started and you know, uh, even before that, there the, all the uh, I think there was a romanticization of divorce in like in in the movies and um, this especially started in the 50s, 60s, uh, and uh, you know so there was this kind of breakdown, family breakdown, um, and out of wedlock marriage and so on, where the child nobody cares about the children it seems. I mean, you know they're being 
they're, you know, they're, they're, they're the ones who are stuck holding the bag, you know, when it comes to divorce and isolation and all of these, uh, you know, all these other factors, you know, abortion, uh, you know, it, it, it's, and the, and the push to uh, destabilize them really through gender ideology. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I mean, they, they, they do it under the guise of anti-discrimination and so on and so forth, but it's, it's, a, it's a very destabilized. If you can't see how that destabilizes a child. I mean, when my kids were toddlers, they used to watch this Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers had a little song about only boys can be the daddies, only girls can be the mommies. And of course, it's just really amazing how far things have come, even when my kids were, were little. Now they're, oh my goodness. I mean, even though Mr. Rogers is considered some kind of a, um, you know, among child development experts, you know, great guy, he's dead now. But uh, I don't know what he'd have to say about all this drag queen stuff. I think he'd be horrified. But uh, but I'm just, I mentioned that only because it's, it shows how quickly these things have taken off and, uh, and how quickly things have turned around upside down and, uh, and are very destabilizing. I mean, he, he sang that song as a means of helping kids come to terms with reality. I mean, his, his show was all about the line between fantasy and reality, imagination. The, the, now we're gonna go to the land of make-believe and it even showed the switch where the little trolley came in and all that. And, um, and then what, this is real, the community and all that. So anyway, uh, things started changing, yes, uh, post-war. Uh, but they also, you know, through critical theory itself, the Frankfurt School, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with that, but uh, the cultural Marxists got started 100 years ago, uh, you know, with this whole long march through the institutions that, that it's manifesting itself today. I wonder if you would uh, speak to, in the time we have left, is it possible to change? And oh, yeah, I think. And if so, how? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one reason I wrote the book is because this dynamic, okay, and I don't think I talked enough about that, this dynamic that, you know, we're social creatures. Of course, we all know that instinctively, but we have this hardwired need to connect with others. The flip side being the, the fear of being isolated. Uh, we need to become a whole lot more conscious of how that is exploited, that vulnerability that's natural, very natural in all of us, is exploited to bring about our self-censorship, which you know turns into top-down censorship when we give bad agendas that much oxygen. So I wrote the book to help people learn, uh, I hope, you know, a, kind of a blueprint for how these things happen, how they've happened throughout history. I talk about the conformity impulse, uh, at, you know, Solomon Ash's experiment about uh, the conformity impulse in the 1950s and, um, you know, followed by his student Stanley Milgram's experiments, the shock experiments, uh, how people can be, um, you know, gently coerced into hurting other people through the just following orders, uh, obedience to authority. And, uh, you know, it goes on through that and the institutional corruption that we're seeing 
and to try to put together a blueprint, an understanding of how these dynamics, these patterns have played out through history and how they continue to play out through the, you know, the globalist agenda. And yes, we're kind of in the fourth quarter now, but I think, yes, we can turn it around if we become aware and if we understand how critical our private life, our private sphere of life is. That's really the big prize with totalitarians. It always has been. Just look at Mao's struggle sessions or the Bolsheviks, uh, you know, teaching kids to turn in their parents for, you know, a misstep or saying something that's politically incorrect. It, it's, it's, a, um, it, it's a pattern. We don't want it to get to that point. But the private sphere of life is where our power really lies because propaganda, mass propaganda, is not as convincing as a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone you trust, a friend, family member, or whatever. And you have to, we have to keep building and cultivating that private sphere. We have to reach out, know who your neighbors are, get to know people, have them see you and you see them as unique individuals, not some identity politics manufactured demographic who's an oppressor or a victim. And the more we can do that in our communities, in our families, uh, you know, it's a long road. I'm not saying, you know, it's an overnight thing, but we've got to start that work. That's terrific. We have been having a wonderful conversation with uh, Stella Morbito. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Thank you. How can the people buy the book? Well, it's available um, right now on Amazon, just online. Uh, it's a, on Amazon and on Barnes and Noble. There's also a Kindle edition available on Amazon. Uh, and um, that's, you know, you just have to order it through there and um, it'll get to you pretty quick. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Dan. I really enjoy talking to you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Okay. Um, so I think you would make a wonderful guest on our Moms Across America show. And if you would like to make a note to um, go to Blacks, B-L-A-C-K-S and Whites, W-H-I-T-E-S dot U-S. Mm -hmm. And in the upper header, there's shows. Scroll down to Moms Across America and listen to some of the episodes uh, or and, and watch them. Um, you know, just a couple, and let me know if you'd be interested in joining the ladies in the conversation. Oh, yeah, I know. I can tell you right now, I, I, I probably would, because as a suburban mom myself, not today, but back in those days, I understood the pressures. I mean, um, suburban mothers in particular have a really hard time, um, you know, when they're dealing with this whole environment of political correctness, they're very, I mean, they're worried that their children are going to be ostracized. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and, and women as, you know, the Obama campaign in 2012 showed us the, the, you know, they use that life of Julia inf infographic. Right. Yeah. So anyway, um, it, it was, uh, we're not on air, right? No. Okay, yeah, and so they, they have targeted women as the biggest voter block. And in fact, this last midterms, you, I don't know if you saw the 
it's polling, but it was like 37 um, unmarried women by uh, a, a margin of 37% voted Democrat, 37%. So it just kind of indicates, you know, unmarried men, it was interesting. It was something like they were like 8% by a margin of 8% more Republican. That was unmarried men. But unmarried women is this vast voter block that Democrats have, um, you know, views. Married men, uh, married women voted Republican. Mar you know, being married puts you in the mind frame, in the mindset of, you know, looking towards the future of your children, looking towards the future and trying to preserve the things that matter. And, um, you know, I guess the unmarried, you know, if I, I'm just speculating, but, you know, it's, it's more a concern about who's going to take care of me, especially when it comes to women. That's that whole life of Julia infographic, taking care of her from, from cradle to grave. It was uh, really unbelievable, but that's kind of where we are. So thank you for your time. I'll be in touch about Moms Across America. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. I, hope yeah, I, I will just... send you a copy of the show when it's done. Maybe you can put oh, it up you. on your link to your website. Okay. Thank you very much. My I really pleasure. appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.